Father, we rest in you. Life is sometimes hectic, overwhelming, but yet when we rest in you, it's okay. We praise you. We know that you are seated on your throne, that you are in absolute control of the universe, and that you hold us in your hand, and oh, how good it is to know that. You have a plan, and you're calling us to it. We want to get in on your plan. So teach us, speak to us through your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn to Zechariah chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, page 539 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Zechariah, verse by verse, and we are just starting it today. So here we are, uh, entitled this, Times of Refreshing, God's Plan for Revival. We're going to see throughout the book of Zechariah, God's plan for revival. read this story, uh, Harold and Jane uh, were not a very religious couple, but tried their best, and they only went to church once a year. As they were leaving the church, the minister said, Harold, it sure would be nice to see you and Jane here more than once a year. I know, he replied, uh, we're very busy people leading active lives, but at least we keep the Ten Commandments. That's great, the minister said. I'm glad to hear that you keep the Ten Commandments. He says, yes, we sure do, Harold said proudly. Jane keeps six of them and I keep the other four. But seriously, the world promises happiness. It has lots of gadgets, leisure, etc., sometimes in bounds, sometimes out of bounds. But the world promises happiness, but it produces broken homes, division, and hopelessness. But God's plan of revival brings real happiness And times of refreshing, times of thirst quenching like springs of water in the desert refreshing. This is a picture of uh, the springs of En Gedi where it was a really hot day and those guys up there were experiencing some times of refreshing. Remember that, Jim? (laughs) Awesome. Are you thirsty? It's not a rhetorical question. Okay, yeah, me too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Are you thirsty? Would you like a drink? Not my water. Jesus didn't rise from the dead for nothing. He has a plan. It's incredible. Christ's resurrection reveals the truth of the Bible and the power of God to save and bring revival. But these personal times of refreshing and revival, and revival is really a large corporate experience of God's times of refreshing and power that change a broken world. So these personal times of refreshing and revival come only according to God's plan not ours, because he's God. So do you want revival? See, the book of Zechariah gives us 
insights into revival on God's terms. The first six verses that we're going to see this morning give us the sinqua known of revival. That means the essential prerequisite for real revival, and it is repentance. Let's look at our passage. Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors, so tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, as the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now, this may seem a little harsh, especially for an Easter service where you're supposed to hear some fluff and feel good, right? But God does care about you. And I believe he cares about you enough to give it to you straight. This is what he's saying. This is what's necessary, repentance. Return to me, and I will return to you. Apart from repentance, there is no hope. Let me give you some background of what's going on in this passage. You see, the Israelites had sinned big time. God kept warning them through the prophets, and then finally brought judgment on them. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in, completely destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, killed a bunch of people, and exiled the rest up to Babylon. They were there for 70 years, and then God allowed them to return home under Cyrus, the Persian. And so they came home, but they were still at home, still under the rule of the Persians. So they still felt like they were in exile. They started to rebuild the temple, but they got some problems and some people in their way, and so they gave up, and they were really without hope. Haggai, one prophet, comes along and starts preaching to them. It's actually the book just before Zechariah there, and uh, and they started working on the temple again, and Zechariah is along with him to encourage them in this endeavor. Uh, let me read from uh, Stephen Rummage in his commentary. He says, in Zechariah 1, 1 through 6, God sent a message to the Jews who had come back to Jerusalem. Now back in their homeland, they had grown cold in their spiritual lives. The initial enthusiasm they had for rebuilding the new temple had turned into complacency and discouragement. Their work had stopped, their faithfulness had wilted, and the Lord was not pleased. Haggai's primary purpose was to get the people to restart the work of building the Lord's house. Zechariah's purpose went even deeper. He called the people to a renewed closeness to the Lord. Our text shows how God worked when we how God works when we have strayed, calling us back to himself with compelling yet compassionate language. 
Things still looked bleak. But then God spoke. And when God speaks, then we're encouraged. That is where our hope comes from. It comes from God himself. Uh, The word, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. He remembers, he cares, he sees our situation and is ready to step in. So do you want him in your life? He's not gonna force himself. Do you want the times of refreshing that can come? That's what he's calling us to, times of refreshing. So, in this passage, we learn some things about God and we learn some things about his plan. So what do we learn about God in this passage? And the first thing that comes to my mind is that God speaks clearly. He says, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. God spoke through the prophets. He had them write down the very words he wanted written. He's made it very clear to us that he's spoken. Here is who he is, and here is his plan. Now, he's given everybody a conscience, hasn't he? Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Now, sometimes we skew that conscience and twist it from our society, etc. But we all have this basic sense of right and wrong, but he's given us his word as well. Now, I know that some people say, well, How do you know that's his word? How do you know it's not this book or that book or that book? There's incredible evidence for God's word, and I would encourage you to look into it. Uh, It's why I wrote my book, uh, The Uniqueness of the Bible. I show the evidence for this book that this is not just written by men. This is supernatural in its nature, amazing. It is God's word. He has spoken clearly. But then we see another thing we learn about God is that God is angry. Did you see this? It says in verse 2, the Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. Extremely angry, it says. There was a billboard uh, on I-4. That's a highway that goes into Orlando and just outside of Orlando. It said, God is not angry. I don't know which God they're talking about, but I'm reading the book, and it says he's angry, extremely angry about sin. This Now, his anger's not like our anger. He doesn't, you know, go out of control, have fits and so forth. In fact, he is very slow to anger, according to the Bible. But God is extremely angry. You see, when, you, when we rebel against him... We put ourselves in his angry zone. Uh, In uh, Orlando, they have SeaWorld. And uh, back in the day, I don't know if they still have it or not, but they they have the the Shamu, you know, the great killer whale. And uh, they have the Shamu Stadium. And and, uh, and they have this area of the stadium with the killer whale. And all, all the seats are painted blue. Okay, and this is called the soak zone, right? That means, and it's a warning to everybody, you sit in this seat, you will get soaked, okay? Rebelling against God is the angry zone, okay? And that's what we're seeing. 
here. He's not just an old grandpa upstairs. He is the creator of the universe, and it says he's angry about their sin. And then we see his name. He is called Yahweh of the armies. That when it says Lord of the armies, L-O-R-D in all capital letters, that's the personal name for God, Yahweh. Yahweh of the armies. In the book of Zechariah, this phrase for God is used 53 times. He's saying something. We see it here several times already in our passage. He's trying to let us know God is awesome. Now we're going to see his army in chapter 6, but I want you to get a glimpse. Look at 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16. Here we see a glimpse of the army of God. This is where Elisha and his servant Gehazi are in their little village of Dothan and, and the enemy's army had surrounded the village because they, they wanted to get Elisha. And, the, and Gehazi wakes up and he's like, he's totally afraid. He sees all the armies around him. And he wakes up Elisha and he says, what are we going to do? And then look at his response. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. Elisha said, don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, Please open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw that the mountain was covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. (laughs) And that army took the other army, blinded them, and then escorted them into the city of Samaria. I mean, God is in absolute control. Now, if you're on his side, you don't have anything to fear. God is Yahweh of the armies. And this is what we see and learn about God. But what do we learn then about his plan? What is our response to this? Let me start out again with Stephen Rummage, who shares. And uh, this is an illustration that's dear to me as well, because... I'm an absent-minded professor, and so is this guy. All right, and this is what he says, and I totally relate. He says, my sweet family likes to say that I am directionally challenged. No one in my home asks me to give directions, right? Okay. (laughs) So, Under my leadership, I have gotten us lost in some of the finest cities in the United States. I've gotten us lost on some serious trails out in the wilderness, too, which was not very good. (laughs) And Chicago as well, yes. (laughs) You had to remind me, Daniel. Or, or, yeah, okay. By myself, I have been hopelessly lost over and over again in all kinds of places throughout the years. I have even been in communities within five miles of where I live without a clue how I got where I was or where I needed to turn next. That is why I was so happy several years ago to get a car with a satellite navigation system. Now we have GPS. For a directionally impaired person like me, that system, with its gentle but authoritative computerized voice, instructing me where and when to turn next, has been a gift from heaven. I rarely get mixed up with my directions anymore, and even if I do, my navigation system has a fail-safe, the go-home button. 
As long as I have that button, no matter where I am, I know I am never lost. I can push, go home, and instantly a voice begins to direct me back to my home address. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. He says, the hope of the gospel is that lost people can be found and that distant and wandering believers can come back to the Lord. God has put something that says, go home inside every human heart. Jesus calls us to return when we wander far from him. The need to return to the Lord is great. So many people who call themselves followers of Jesus simply are not following Jesus. And that's what he's calling. He's saying, return to me and I will return to you. Go home. Return to me. This is the word repent. Shuv is the Hebrew word here. Metanoia, repentance, is the Greek word. Uh, it means to have a change of mind and heart about your sin. You see sin is bad. You wished you wouldn't have done it. You don't want to do it again, but you recognize you can't stop. So you cry out to God, oh God, save me. That's Repentance. It's not works. It's not something that you do that you have to earn God's favor. Jesus has already done everything necessary for our forgiveness. That's why he died on the cross. He paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins when he died on the cross, and he calls us to simply turn back to him, to return. Let me tell you about the Latin fiasco Uh, that took place when Jerome translated the Old and New Testament into Latin. What he did wrong was he translated the word repentance to penitatia in the Latin, which means do penance. So that mistake led so many people to think that they had to earn their way back to God, that they had to do these things in order to get God's favor when Jesus has already done everything for our salvation. And he calls us simply, return to me and I will return to you. Look at Acts 3, 19 and 20. We see a New Testament passage. This is right after uh, the Pentecost and now pre- uh, Peter's preaching. And, and look at his message here about repentance. He says in Acts three nineteen, Therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that you may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. You see this? Turn back to me so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come. You see, yes, Jesus' death brings about the forgiveness of our sins, but so that we can have the presence of the Lord, which brings about the incredible times of refreshing. Have you ever experienced them? The the times of refreshing... When you, when you experience the presence of the Lord, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit and he just overwhelms you with just joy and peace and happiness. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, because I want every one of you to have this. I don't want you to walk out those doors and just go and eat candy. 
Although that is nice. God wants us. He wants to pour out his spirit upon us. And he simply calls us, turn from the sinful life. Turn back to me. Times of refreshing. I've seen people healed, dramatically healed. I've seen lives in bondage of, of sin and of drugs and, and etc. And I've seen them completely transformed. I've seen God come into people's lives in marriages that were absolutely hopeless and the times of refreshing came. Don't you want that? I sure, I want more, Lord. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Okay, and this is what he's saying right here. Seasons of refreshing. Anapsuxis is the Greek word. It means a cooling, a refreshing, a recovery of breath. If you've ever had COPD, you could imagine that, right? Recovery of breath, a blessing, the messianic blessing ushered in by Messiah. That's how this word is used. Look at Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Here we see an Old Testament passage that speaks of this and helps us to understand. Isaiah 55, he says, come. Everyone who is thirsty, are you thirsty? Because, see, if you're not thirsty, this message isn't for you. You're going to have your religious experience, and you're going to go and do your thing. But if you're thirsty, look what he says. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindnesses of David on the new covenant and the Davidic covenant here. He's saying, come by without cost. It's free. Salvation is free. We repent. We see our sin is bad. We wish we wouldn't have done it. We don't want to do it again, but we cry out to God for help. It's that simple. And faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for our sins. Now this repentance, there's an initial and a lifestyle aspect to it. There's an initial time when the Bible says you become born again. When you at that moment decide I am turning from my sin and I'm turning to Jesus and I'm putting my faith in him and him alone for my salvation. At that moment the Bible says you're born again. And you outwardly express that faith in baptism. That's what he calls us to in uh, Acts 2 and many, many other passages. But then there's a lifestyle of repentance when you get convicted, you repent, right? Uh, and, and we see this because when we turn from sin and turn to God, we find God with his arms wide open, ready to receive us. He loves you. He wants you in his life. And so we see our response. It says, repent. And then it says, listen to God's word. Listen to him. We tend to excuse our sin, don't we? 
It's kind of like if you've ever had little kids. They do something wrong, and they say, that wasn't me. <laughs> you know, and they'd make up all the excuses in the world when it's so simple. What happens when they say, I'm sorry? Right? <laughs> That's us. That's what he's calling us to. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, do not be like your ancestors, The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? God is long-suffering and he is gracious. But his warnings don't last forever. That's what he means by this. So look at the cost analysis, okay? You stay away from God, you incur his anger, and all the while being miserable. Or you draw near to him in repentance, you receive times of refreshing and revival, and your life is never the same since. It's a no-brainer, really, isn't it? Turn back to God. He has this incredible plan for you. That's our response. That's what we see in this passage. Let me finish with uh, something again from Stephen Rummage. He says, Pastor Bobby Welch tells a story, and for the setting, he uses the longest bridge in the world over water, the 24-mile Lake Pontchartrain Causeway which stretches from the north shore of New Orleans into the city. I've been there, driven across that bridge. It's long. At times, fog will roll in over the lake, and you can barely see in front of you on that bridge. It was one of those foggy days, and a man was creeping along a bank as bank after bank of fog came in. Suddenly, right in front of him, the man saw someone running straight toward his car, waving his arms and screaming, The driver changed lanes and kept creeping forward. The man running toward him got into the other lane and continued running toward him, still waving his arms and screaming. As the running man got closer, the driver began to make out the words he was screaming. Stop, stop, in the name of God, stop. The bridge is out, the bridge is out. Finally, the man driving got the message and stopped got out of his car, and together he and the other man crawled through the fog until they came to a place where a barge going across Lake Pontchartrain had hit the bridge and taken a whole section out. Half a dozen people had driven off into the water and had died. The two men looked at the horrific scene of people who had plummeted into the lake, struggling for their lives. The man who had been driving that car was so thankful that someone had cared enough to warn him. When a pastor preaches a message of judgment or a message that talks about God's anger, it is not usually popular, but it is an urgent message. And ultimately, it's a loving message motivated by a concern for the souls of men and women. That's why we must share the message of repentance with others and heed it ourselves. Make no mistake, a time is coming when God's repeated warnings will stop. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? A time will come 
when our lives will be over. Or a time may come when the person who has warned us and called us to turn back to Jesus Christ will no longer be in our lives. People who sound the warnings in our lives may seem to be a thorn in our side and their message may seem negative or tiresome as they keep telling lost people to turn to Christ for salvation or urging wayward believers to return to the Lord. But the time will come when God's judgment will overtake those who reject God's warning. Do you want times of refreshing? I love this passage in John, and I'll close with this. John chapter 7, Jesus is at a festival, and this is what he says. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit is experienced in you from deep down, welling up to glory. Do you want that? Let's pray. Father, none of us deserve you. Every one of us have failed miserably, and we say we're sorry. We ask you to forgive us, but we don't run away anymore. You've told us right here, return to me, and I will return to you. And so we come to you, and we ask, help us. You know how hard it is to live in this world, and it draws us so much away from you. Forgive us, but fill us. Give us a renewed hope. Pour out your times of refreshing so that we can together encourage one another and reach out and make a difference in this world. Come and do this mighty work of revival, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.